Hello and welcome to the Together for the Common Good podcast channel. My name is Jenny Sinclair, and this is a podcast where we explore what the common good means in practice and how it can help us work towards civic and spiritual renewal. I'm the founder and director of the UK Christian charity Together for the Common Good. In this series, we're showcasing a set of nine lectures bringing alive what the common good means in terms of responsibility, political participation in civic life, human freedom, economy, the dignity of work, people and planet, and social peace. In this sixth episode, the sixth lecture in the series is given by Lord Morris Glassman, who stepped in for the MP John Crudders, who was detained at the House of Commons on a night of intense voting. So this is actually a bonus lecture, and you can hear John Crudders' lecture in an episode seven. I was very grateful to Morris for so kindly stepping in at the last minute, having only a few notes and questions from me. He's thinking on his feet, and the audience were captivated. I asked him to address what has happened to the nature of work and to explore the broader socio-economic crisis. He sets the scene by identifying the features of the new era and the end of globalization and the emptiness of the political class. Drawing on the framework of Catholic social thought, in particular how it conceptualizes the relationship between capital and labor, he shows how corporations have gained power while workers have lost out why the dignity of work must be at the heart of a more just and stable settlement, and what people of faith need to do to promote the resurrection of society. I hope you enjoy what Morris has to say in this lecture called Just Working, Catholic Social Thought and the Dignity of Work. First of all, I'll just begin with with some, um, with some thanks. Uh, first of all, to... Jenny, for all that you do uh, together for the common good. I'm the director of the uh, Common Good Foundation, so it, it would be really poor show if we couldn't find a way of working together. I think, mm-hmm. um, and and I really appreciate I really appreciate it. And John Crudders is my really, I would say, my closest friend in politics. So he rang me up today and he said, "I've got a problem," you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I said, haven't we all? And, uh, <laughs> and he said, yeah, but I've got a three-line whip. And I said, so have I. And then he said, yeah, but you're in the Lord, and it don't matter. <laughs> so um, I didn't really have a comeback for that. Um, so um, I, John says he's going to get here as, as soon as he can. He also has written a paper, so that will be, I hope, um, later. I'll try to to keep to the topic, but um, more broadly, I want to talk about uh, Catholic social thought um, and how and how it's um, an absolutely essential part um, of of building a new politics. I'll talk more about that, but I also look around the table and realise, wow, it's I've been doing this for quite a while now, and it's really I'm now looking out at. Uh, really old friends, and it's it's very good to to see you all. Um, you know, I'll begin with you know just just uh, three reflections before I get into the heart of the matter. Um, the first is always for me, and uh, Paul mentioned it is that discovering Catholic social thought really transformed my world. It transformed my um, faith, and it transformed my my politics and particularly um Rerum Navarum, Laborum Exochens and Chantesimus Annus as three encyclicals. I mean really all the blue labour is is trying to make those articulate those at this at this moment, the idea that we are fallen beings, um susceptible both to virtue and to sin, I think is an absolutely essential starting point that the institutions that surround us are decisive in whether we go one way um, or the other It is vital. Um, it's a Dominican thing, you know, um, going on. And, you know, the, the the idea that we're social beings, the Aristotelian inheritance, the idea that we find the meaning of life in our relationships and in our work, 
uh, are absolutely fundamental um, in the articulation of the of the common good within that is, is is central and I'm thinking here we have here the old alliance of the Salvation Army and the Catholic Church that was the very very origins of the labor movement with the Dockers strike and if you read the articles around that time the horror with which it was greeted this idea that the Dockers should be paid was minimal but what caused enormous outrage in the editorial pages and the letters pages of the times was the idea that the Salvation Army is a Protestant organization and Cardinal Manning fronting it up. It was William Booth and Cardinal Manning. The idea that Catholic and Protestant could work together was genuinely greeted with horror. That's the radical nature uh, of Catholic social thought. It was Cardinal Manning together with Archbishop von Kettler in Germany, who actually were the driving forces for Rerum Navarum and the birth of Catholic social thought. So it's a source of it. Um, enormous importance to me that the origins of Catholic social thought were driven in the in our politics, in our society, uh, and are ours. And um, obviously, they've been madly neglected. But there really is no alternative than to return to excavate those uh, those origins, um, and that's particularly true. Although I won't labour the point, so to speak, about my party. Um, the second uh, thing that's put is to speak, we're speaking here from the City of London. The City of London is the oldest continuous democracy, democratic city, self-governing city um, in the world, founded by the Romans. It has a very um, odd place because it preceded Parliament. You know, in the Norman Conquest, the conqueror basically laid waste to the rest of the country, but he got to London and he stopped. And that was because the city of London, you know, had 5,000 men in a militia standing at the gates waiting. It wasn't, and he came friendly to London and didn't conquer it and allowed English to be used, allowed um, common law in the courts. It's the very origin of the pushback against the conquest, the whole concept of the ancient constitution is rooted in the city of London. And you can see through its institutions, you know, the Guildhall, where you won't be able to find a single worker. It's a banking association now, but that used to be a source of uh, moral economy. Um, and essentially, with a, a really hugely important self-governing city that then was entirely conquered by capital, became the absolute central address for the, for the domination um, of capital within the framework of the maritime empire and the and and the British Empire, so it's important to remember that outside the city of London, you know, they call it City Hall, but it is it's the Greater London Authority. You know, it's a you know City of London has what one hundred fifty thousand inhabitants, and it's got over a hundred elected representatives. The GLA by contrast, has more than 8 million people and 16 representatives. I just say that if central to this is, is the idea, um, I think that we have lived through a period of time and its roots are very deep, where money has exercised dominion and uh, democracy has been subordinated to that and certainly uh, what Jenny refers to um, as the kingdom. And, and the third thing is, you know, to, to Pope Francis said that we're not living through an era of change, but a change of era. And I think we've got to take that to heart, that our politics may seem flat, mundane and technocratic, but the profundity of the change is, is very real. And we must get into position to understand that change not to be overwhelmed by fear in relation to that and to be able to develop a politics um, that is commensurate to the scale of the changes. Uh, and I, you know, what I advocate very much is that in, is in our thing is that we move from, from contract to covenant in the way that we think that that's the essence of the 
uh, biblical political economy, and it's the it's the very essence, I think, of of Catholic social thought that we recognise that we are bound to each other in association through thick and thin, and we have a much more durable um, institutional system um, because uh, capitalism is fundamentally based on on this idea of contract, of the idea of an exchange between hands um, of equivalence. And what we've found is that leads to um, huge inequalities of power, huge inequalities um, of, of wealth, and we need to resurrect uh, more durable forms um, of association. And I think that, um, you know, London becoming a city would maybe be a good place to start in, you know, beginning to, to think about um, how our inheritance is distributed because the city of London has inherited all the ancient liberties, all the assets of 2000 years. And London as a local authority um, just has to, has to make do with, with what it has. So, you know, there, there's, there's my, Thank you, and I just want to talk about when Pope Francis talks about living through, um, not living through an era of change, but a change of era. What are the forms? What are the new forms that we have to recognise? And and the first is that the era that we have lived through for the past, let's say since 1979, let's give it a date and say that it commenced then, it's still not over. Um, but it's definitely on the rock. So we call, just call it an era of globalization. Let's say that. The technology knew no borders. Technology knows no limits. That national borders were increasingly irrelevant. That they, it was good that there would be a free movement of capital, of labor, of goods, of services. That, uh, that this was all um, in the public interest. And that era has come to, to, to an end. So, you know, I'm not talking, I know that mental health is very much on people's minds, but when I talk about a bipolar world, I don't mean it in the mental health sense. I mean it in the sense that fundamental to globalization was the idea that capital would transfer its assets, um, to China fundamentally and other areas in, in Southeast Asia, but China, so one of the great ironies of history is that the most successful enduring communist regime was the most hostile to labor. There were no free and democratic trade unions, that's disallowed, no freedom of religious association, that's also disallowed, but China could guarantee 24 hours production without any disruption from strikes. That's what China could offer with an educated workforce that did not participate in any way in the governance of the economy. So China offered the dream of frictionless returns to capital. And capital duly relocated to China. And we saw, you know, so when I'm talking about the change of era, we can't ignore what happened with the Brexit vote, for example. And for me, the Brexit vote was fundamentally driven by the dispossession and abandonment of our working class, that they had no real role in this future. <laughs> they were called lots of things. They were called the left behind. That was the nice term. But essentially, they were seen as an archaic remnant of a previous civilization. So when we talk about the change of era, um, the first point about the change of era is, is that it is now the case that the state, the nation state, will play a far bigger role in the economy than was previously thought. Um, does, does anybody remember COVID? Does anybody remember this period? It was, for me, a, a very interesting... It was the first time in my living memory do you remember it only lasted for about six or seven weeks but suddenly we what was invisible to us which was work um human labor suddenly became visible suddenly there were those of us who could earn a living behind a computer screen on zoom and there were those of us who had to leave the house and do things for others essentially with their hands um those were truck drivers, those were shelf stackers, those were 
uh, nurses in hospitals who were who were dealing with the sick, like those were street cleaners. Suddenly, do you remember? We started applauding people <clears throat> for going to work. It was a. It, I thought that was a very very significant moment that, of course, passed. But what it also revealed was the incredible dependency on what they call extended supply chains and that we couldn't even make face masks, you know, let alone respirators, let alone medicine. Suddenly the incredible dependence on China for a very brief period um, became quite scary. So one of the effects of that has been um, and it's long-standing that the state will play a bigger role in the economy and the working class, far from being the left behind, the abandoned and the dispossessed, are the decisive force now in elections. So the next election, just to tell you, will be this contestation for what they call the Red Wall, the people who voted for the Conservatives in 2019 and Labour desperately need to vote for them um, at the next election. And that will be the essential um, battleground of politics and these places. And this is the important thing, is that for globalization, place didn't matter. Place didn't matter at all. Um, you could participate in the economy from wherever you lived um, due to the internet and technological changes. Um, but in politics now, place is very important. And um, this is our friend, um, as I'm now going to um, I'm now going to uh, talk about this, which is um, if the growth areas in the economy are very much related to what you might call relational work. So huge increase in people employed in social care, care for the old, huge increases in people who work in schools, working as teaching assistants, um, working with people with, with mental health problems. In all those areas, I even hear that in the city, I don't know, Andrew, at lunchtime, you have personal trainers come and take people for, where they used to just get drunk and eat long lunches, they take people for intense runs and keep their fitness up. Um, a huge explosion, um, but it's completely disorganized and it's contracted out and it's low paid. I mean, did you see the, the case? It was just yesterday that a teaching assistant got stabbed in a school, in a school playground. And I was looking into it and it turns out that the teaching assistants aren't in the union. They don't have representation and, and all these things. So there's a, you know, when we talk about the people that we really depend on, their wages are, are have been pushed down. Um, their, tra their training is extremely scanty. And I think in Catholic social thought, we do have the idea, Jenny spoke about a calling. I, I also think that the concept of vocation is worthy of retrieval. And because we are social beings, to go back to the Aristotelian inheritance, Catholic social thought gives incredibly importance to association, to people associating with each other. We've seen the complete atrophy um, of association. Um, but it is necessary for this to be resurrected, I think, in order for that dignity to be restored and for people to be able to participate in their working lives um, with dignity and with some power. So we've seen this, you know, this, you know, we've seen the emergence of a bipolar world. We've also seen the really strong emergence of a bipolar labour market where there's extremely high rewards for professionals, for, for finance, um, for tech. And then when it comes to the substantial economy or the real economy, the care we give to others, um, there's very low wage, very poor representation um, in that. And we've also seen, which I think is also needs to be rethought, um, the abandonment of full employment as a goal of um of politics, because I think ultimately in our inheritance from the scriptures, work is a fundamental way in which we realize our creativity, our partnership with other people, and the transformation of our inheritance, the transformation um, of the world. 
I used to get into a lot of trouble. Paul, you will remember this from early Blue Labour days. I used to get into really terrible trouble um, in the Labour Party for publicly associating with the church, with faith, because, of course, it's patriarchal, sexual abuse. It's just horrible, um, essentially. And I used to say, yeah, but at least people of faith don't think the free market created the world. You know, that there's some prior and substantial inheritance. And I think that that's uh, worth remembering. So why why is it that I'm so wedded to Catholic social thought in terms of statecraft and in terms of the political economy? Um, and it's fundamentally... Um, because Catholic social thought is the most practical, secular guide to the problems that we have and how to begin to think of a political and inst institutional solution to them. So the first thing to understand about globalization is it was fundamentally based on the fungibility and dehumanization of labor. That any worker could be exchanged for any other worker. If you didn't have workers here, you could bring them in from abroad. I saw yesterday that the Dutch government fell because of issues relating to immigration. But this whole um, low-paid workers, disintegration of solidarity um, is a fundamentally important uh, political topic. But the fundamental insight of Catholic social thought is that there is such thing as class, that there is a relationship between capital and labor, that it says that labor is the living element. Um, I can't stress enough how labor and exigence is the most profound work on human labor, on human work, that I think has been written in the last hundred years. And it talks about the realization of the person through their labor, the fulfillment of that, the relationships that are essential, the notion of a vocation which is passed on, an inheritance in the uh, in relation to the um, dignity of the person and how capital is an enormous threat because what is capital? Capital is an accumulation of inherited wealth um, that has become committed to the highest return at the greatest speed. In other words, it's by de definition exploitative. So what is necessary is to have countervailing powers to that that can retrieve and restore the dignity of the person and particularly of the, of the worker. Um, so the dignity of labor is vital. That's done in Catholic social thought as we have inherited it through a concept of vocation, of vocational colleges. Um, it is one aspect of that, that, that it's done through trade unions, of building association and trade unions as, as necessary associations in order to limit the dehumanization of the individual worker. And in that, it teaches us something about sociability. You know, whenever I meet people and I ask them why they're doing what they're doing, and they say, because I want to make a difference, my heart weeps and it bleeds because you can't do it on your own. You've got to do it through fellowship. You've got to do it through association. You've got to do it through building institutions and democratic institutions um, with other people. So that's the, the, that's the first and primary reason why Catholic thought is that Catholic social thought still believes in the value and importance of labor, of the human being. So labor is just another word for the human being. And the relentless exploitation of the human being and they're turning into a commodity. So this is where I see the, the contemporary political stage is that in the period of globalization, everything was a commodity, right? So I'll just give you some examples that we're living through now. Water. We just allowed our water to be privatized and subject to foreign ownership, prices, it's, it's been commodified. Now, what is commodification? 
commodifications, the process through which, sorry, it's gone seven, so I'm allowed to use a really horrible long word like that, but commodification is the process through which something that was not produced for sale is turned into a sale that is open, a commodity that's open for sale on the open market. So, you know, the human being, obviously, is a miraculous expression of love. But in the labor market, it's treated as a commodity. Water is a necessity of human life. Absolutely central in the Bible, the heavens, the earth, the prayers for rain, Philip, that we regularly, you know, this is a matter of now it, it's a commodity. Heat, energy, all these things were considered best organized within the private sector, best organized through markets, best organized through prices. And now we're dealing, right now we're dealing, we're reaping the whirlwind of all of this. But Catholic social thought does not say nationalize. Catholic social thought does not say centralized state ownership. Catholic social thought has a much more sophisticated approach to, to this, and I would like to go through that now. So it's not only that the, in Catholic social thought that the human being is has dignity and that the laborer is to be respected as a partner with capital in the organization of the political economy and not subordinate when it's a partnership that's a reciprocal uh, relationship between capital and labor but the second principle of catholic social thought which i think is is equally significant is you know bad word again but it's past the witching hour is subsidiarity is decent the power should be exercised at the lowest level commensurate with function in other words, the place still matters, that association matters. And within Catholic social thought, I think it gives an opening space for thinking about how we can have locally organized civic trusts responsible for water, energy. We used to have, the, remember the water boards? On the, the, but things changed after, 19, after 1945, the central state so I would say 45 to 79 was the period of the centralized state when the failures of that grew to be on the control of the politicians. That when we, that's when we entered the period of globalization, which would date from 79 till now. So now in our politics, we have to find a different way. And I think Catholic social thought opens that way. And the importance of decentralization, of subsidiarity, of local participation in the governance um, of the economy as well as politics are absolutely vital. So you have status, the status of the worker, then you have subsidiarity and decentralization, which I think are vital. And then you and then you have solidarity, which is the responsibilities that we have, the obligations that we have to each other as bound by association. And all the different forms of voluntary and involuntary associations are vital. But it ultimately means that there also has to be a redistribution um, from rich to poor in fundamental ways, um, which doesn't mean that the poor don't have responsibility. They, they do for, the, for their good work, for their effective work, for participation. But solidarity is the third concept that binds people together in covenantal association. And then there's the stewardship of nature, you know, the idea that as I say, that the free market did not create the world, that we have an obligation to treasure creation itself. Because if you think of it like this, then capitalism is, is something quite nuts. Capitalism wishes to see the commodification of creation, the creation itself. And you can see that in the aggressive resistance to any form of faith in the economy or in politics that any because they wish to absolutely own uh, creation and to dominate creation and so the resistance to that um i think comes from um human association and as i say labor makes a chance and chantesmasanas are absolutely superb um looking at my lot from leviticus 25 to 35 you know in the bible it says that when you lend 
you must keep the person company. The 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 Kesef Tova is the Hebrew, is that you but this is not a transactional relationship between the lender and the lendee, but this is a way that you create relationships. But the existing system we have and the banking system that we have leads far more to the disintegration um, of relationships and no obligation um, when it comes to um, the reciprocity between the rich and the poor or the bank and the and the customer. So this is the reason why the human person has to be put. This is the paradox I always say, that citizenship will be redeemed by faith. The, the rationality alone cannot, um, cannot up, uphold this. Jenny, I'm asking. Okay. Well, I've got, um, there, there's, there's much more to, to say about this. Well, I'll move to to the, the conclusion really um, of the talk is is that we have to recognize the stark realities of where we find ourselves in and in terms of people of, of faith where where we are is that our voice is increasingly marginalized in politics and uh, within the and within the economy, but not as marginalized as the poor. Um, there's a huge crisis at the moment, I think, in the party system. I sense no enthusiasm anywhere in, in relation in, in relation to that or any um or any agenda that that could conceivably take us in a different direction. I think it's our responsibility. Um, to develop, uh, to develop those things, and I, and I, you know, and to understand how desecrated the human being has become within the prevailing system. So, in the economic system, treated completely as a fungible commodity, in the welfare system, treated as an isolated unit and a cost. The disintegration of the traditional. You know, institutions. I I say here to the to the Salvation Army and to the Catholic Church. If you were to have a support for the Dockers now, how many people would come? The reality is, tens of thousands of people walk down to protect the Dockers and to uphold the dignity of labour. How to renew that association? How to renew the relationship? Um, with 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 the poor is essential and we have to look at the the menace the menaces of poverty the menaces you know that's where i came into this into this world i know some of you remember covid does anybody remember the financial crash of 2008 so that was uh something um i think that was the beginning of that move that led to Brexit, but you know that that was the beginning of the disaffection with the prevailing consensus. Um, but we have plenty of work to do to establish an alternative consensus. Um, but the menaces are also about surveillance, about compliance, about bank accounts being terminated because people don't like the politics of the person who holds the, you know, a really strong system um, of corporate control um that that needs to be um resisted now, i do have i do have um, i'm just going through now a kind of listing is is the so I, I will conclude with three points um the first is that we can no longer think about the economy as separate from politics so what we have witnessed in the era of globalization is two things the first is, which is obvious, which is increasing power of the market. That the market has increasingly penetrated into all aspects of life, that the price system is the dominant system for the allocation of resources and goods, that there is a commodification of human social life. But equally, there's been an increase in the power of the state. 
that the state is the other institution, not only in terms of coercion um, and enforcement, but also in terms of welfare. So you have a very strong market and you also have an increasingly strong state. But what has disintegrated in all of this is the third aspect, which is society. And that's the, so if you could say that the principle of the market is contract and the principle of the state is redistribution, move taxation to the center and then out again, then the principle of society, which is reciprocity, which is relationships, has disintegrated. So any agenda coming from Catholic social thought has to put association at the very heart, the restoration, no less, or you could even be melodramatic and call it the resurrection of society. Now, that's really hard work. That's You asked me earlier, um, Paul, about Grimsby, building a community organisation in Grimsby. Now, just to let you know, it's, you know, I'd like to say it's a very nice place, but it's a very tough place. And the reason... I chose Grimsby was because it has the lowest levels of literacy, it has the highest levels of abuse, neglect within its public institutions. And I thought that, you know, the least of these have to lead. You know, that this is another really fundamental principle that I took from Catholic social thought, that we will find leadership from the unexpected places, from the most abandoned places. And we're beginning to see that we're building a community organization there. And the whole goal of it is to restore society. So it's not to stand for any elections. It's not to run businesses. It's just to hold the political and the economic powers, the, the powers and the principalities uh, to account through relational power. That's the idea of, of what we're doing there and to restore that old alliance between the church and labor or between those two factors um in in doing that and it you know that's why i mentioned cardinal manning that's why i mentioned william booth and that's why i mentioned the dockers because that was also a society that where the state and the market were completely dominant and society itself restored some some balance. So I think we can take some inspiration um, inspiration from that. So the importance of organising. Um, but to return to the theme of tonight, and I really hope John gets here soon, um, is that central to Catholic social thought and central to the politics has become is to restore the dignity of the worker through association, through vocation, I tried to give give this talk tonight without talking too much about stats because I found that if you mention stats, people tune out, but I'll give you two. Is that if you look at the last, I got this from, um, it's it was published in American Compass, a guy called Michael Lind, who's an American economist who's very sympathetic to the work that we're doing. And... If you look at Britain and you look at the United States over the last 50 years, and I refer you to the to this report in American Compass, over the last 50 years, real wages have increased about 1%, if you look over the time. Corporate profits have increased by 185%. Right? I don't really think I need to say too much more in relation to this. But when we're talking about a common good, we're not talking about the domination of labor. We're not talking about unions running the country. We're talking about a restoration of some reciprocity in the rewards of the working life and in the way those are distributed. I could go, I could go on, but also to look at another statistic is that in 1979, when I went to university, um, 7% of people went to university and 50% of people had an apprenticeship. Now, because God likes to mock us, 7% have an apprenticeship and 50% go to university. The absolute atrophy of respect for skilled labor 
And this is linked to all the other things that we talk about, the necessity of immigration and all these things are all rooted in the lack of recognition of the fundamental importance of work in the reproduction of society, in the reproduction of relationships within society and a sense of justice within that, that all contribute and that all benefit. I think I'm done. Okay, so thank you very much. We now hear our speaker responding to questions after the lecture. The voice you'll hear first is one of our partners at Lincoln Cathedral who is hosting the event with me. We've included this Q&A because the questions and responses were so interesting. And now back to the episode. My, my question really is, you, you talked about that relationship power of church and labour. What are, the, what are the simple actions that we should be taking now as churches, cathedrals, places of worship? What are the actions that you'd be recommending that we took now to make a difference? Uh, you know, for me, the, the, the centrality is to build relationships in the places that you are. So, you know, one of the nightmares of, of progressive politics is that it completely ignores the relational and goes immediately to the agenda, you know. So the way I put it is ignores Marvin Gaye's question, what's going on, and goes straight to Lenin's question of what is to be done. And we all know how that goes. And the most important thing that anybody can do, and, and that I try to practice in my life, is to talk to people that you live with and that you work with and to build friendship with them wherever you are and to hear what they say because what i find is 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 that essentially the the lives of the poor are still despised and their views are still despised i remember and before you remember early days with blue labor we started doing um we started doing some organizing work within labor in in working class areas. And the response of the party when they, you know, they said, well, we're worried about immigration. And the party said, no, you're not. It's cuts, it's austerity, you know, this inability to listen to what people are saying and the desire to not talk to them anymore once they begin to speak. It's really vital. The most important thing is to build enduring bonds of solidarity with the people around you without paying too much attention to the agenda because the existence of the relationships is transformative of what you can do, but it can't be pursued. The idea is not to use people for your pre-existing agenda. The idea is to build relationships. Now, what you will find when you do that, and I can speak here from experience, is that is that people want the good and people want love and they want meaningful work and they want some sense that they're recognized in this world. It's really, and, and it will come out um, in a form of political economy that they want a decent place to live and a decent job and some security in that. But don't rush to it. <laughs> you get, I mean, so this is the point that Catholic Social Thought gave me is, is the human relationships are transformative, that love really is possible in the world, but the existing system of power and money try to disintegrate those bonds and try to disintegrate the possibility because talking to people is very time-consuming. You know, it's very difficult actually having a conversation with someone and finding out where they're at. What did you do today, darling? Oh, I had a couple of chats with some poor people. Well, you know, get to work. Uh, but that is the work. Is So mm. as you ask that question, that's the, the best, yeah. is not to promote an agenda, but just to reaffirm the possibility of human fellowship and love in the world is the most radical thing and the most enduring thing. No, no. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll hand over to Jenny now, but thanks, Moss. My pleasure. So we've got a few questions. Oh, yeah. Um, this first question is, with increasing secularisation, 
How do we move to a world where our economy is run according to Catholic social thinking? Often people are skeptical of whether the ideas of Catholic social thought can actually gain real political traction in such a highly secular context. And yet there are politicians like you uh, and others from across the country who are drawing on this body of thinking. Mm -hmm. So what it is what is it that unites them and that makes you convinced to give it your energy? And what small steps can we take to help nudge it along? Okay. So I, I think we're, you know, I'm going to make a bold statement. I think that the big 20th century political ideas have run out of road. We're living through the, the end times of all this. Um, as I say, um, state-based socialism, you know, has to account for for its sin, you know, and that sin is palpable in Eastern Europe under the communist system, but also in systems of neglect and lack of accountability that were created in our country. I think that the self-love, greed... Uh, I mean, Mark, the 2008, just the degree of lying that was going on about investments, about accounting, these are all to be reckoned with, and the human suffering and the, and the sin involved in treating people as commodities in exclusively being concerned for your own wealth and not for the, for the well-being and flourishing of others. Okay, so what I'm saying to you clearly, and this is palpable to me in Parliament, is that neither, do you remember, and now this is something that's going to be difficult to remember. Does anybody remember Liz Truss? Does anybody remember that particular? Don't forget that, that Boris's thing was going to be, there's going to be a new political economy. We're going to pay workers more. We're going to have levelling up. We're going to decentralise to the regions. Right? And so then you had the Liz Truss restoration, which was supposed to be Thatcherism, and the markets chucked her out. You know, the markets chucked her out essentially for lowering taxes and and all of that. So that's been rejected. And now we've got what I consider is entirely bankrupt political leadership still trying to tinker with a system that's fundamentally um, failing people in the fulfillment of their family life and their everyday life and their local life. So the, the issue is on us. How do we articulate and how do we pursue um, a, a politics that's faithful to our faith, that is loving and open to all to participate uh, and to share the fruits of that? So, Jenny, I don't... It, it, we don't have the problem. They've got the... You know, the problem is, is that free market capitalism and state socialism have both been revealed as absolutely inadequate means of governing a society. Yeah, I'd like to come in with another question. Yeah. So when you talk about countervailing powers and new forms of association, yeah. in relation to the workplace, can you give us an idea in practical terms of what you mean? Are you, are you talking about new forms of trades unions? Or are you thinking about workers' guilds? Are you talking about forms of governance, accountability? What, what actually might that look like? Yeah. Okay. So the very superficial answer is all of that. Okay. So um, for, first of all, in terms of the governance of economic institutions, there's various ways. Of, one aspect would be called for governance reform, where you have the representation of the locality and of the workforce um, on the board, so that these interests. I mean, I noticed with particular grief in relation to. I, I really love. You know, these, these are one of the things. I really love my football club, which Loughlin knows, uh, Tottenham Hotspur, which is also an incredibly rapacious capitalist organisation. So you, it's this weird thing. You've got all these millions of fans who love the club, and yet they have no representation, and they just announced another 20% increase in the ticket prices. Um but this is all the imbalance of power. It's not just about workforce, it's also about fans and the things that we love. So corporate governance is one um, working on with Philip Ullman, who's here, this concept of civic trusts, which would be accountable to local people through 
public assemblies in places. Um, it's almost back to Roman and Greek forms of accountability through the through the tribunes. But the whole many many examples of this in in the Bible of local assemblies holding holding institutions to account. I think that it's absolutely vital. I mean, we've just managed to bring Unite into relationship with uh, the community organization in Grimsby. It's It's been a story, but it's also to renew a concern that unions should have with the local, with the places that their members live, as, as well as the workplace. And, uh, and that, I think, is a very effective way of addressing the decline of that. But above all, when it comes to the social carers, when it comes to the teaching assistants, when it comes to these new forms of relational work, vocational colleges and guilds. I mean, if you look at Catholic social thought, so key assumption in Blue Labour is the old is the new. There is there are places performed. So I'll, I'll give you I'll give you one anecdote that really interests me. Um, a few years ago. I gave a talk at Labour Party conference and I called for the establishment for half the universities to be closed down and to be turned into vocational colleges. But the doctors and the lawyers and the dentists and the accountants should be put in the vocational colleges because they weren't essentially academic disciplines. They were vocational practice was was the core. And the next day I got legal letters from the BMA, the Law Society, <laughs> um, saying that if I continued with this, they would take legal action, which I found um, really very interesting. So um, let's just say it didn't go down very well at the time. But the important thing is, is, is that you know, that's what's got to be challenged. The idea that a guild, these are guilds, the BMA is a guild that protects the professional interests of its workers. So I think it's really important, the concept of a self-managing guild system in social care um, is vital. And that's to be combined with an effective union that can deal with employers in relation to uh, conditions of work. So these are completely compatible ideas. I'd like to move on to this idea of welfare to work because the vision you're describing needs to, I mean, it needs to take into account we currently have nearly 5 million people on out-of-work benefits. And just going back to a, a quote from Pope Francis where he says that financial help for the poor must always be a provisional solution in the face of pressing needs the broader objective should always be to allow the poor a dignified life through work. Now, sceptics might say that's all very well, but it's not practical in this modern economy that we're stuck in this provisional position because the problem is intractable. But from a Christian worldview, obviously, it's an unacceptable, even an outrageous position to park people on benefits you know, for three or four generations and families, for example, which we have in many parts of the country. Um, where we've had capital flights, where historic, you know, jobs and manufacturing have gone. So how does that shift happen in realistic, practical terms from welfare to work? What kinds of training, what kinds of jobs, what kind of local investment frameworks will actually work to make that happen? It's been tried and it's sort of failed, isn't it, in the past? What was wrong with the way it was done before? Well, it was completely individualist. Um, that was that was one aspect. There was no component whatsoever of vocation, of relationship. You know, it, it's the is that that's what I mean. The restoration. You You're know, saying because it was very centralised, because it was a government top-down initiative rather than doing it. And it was, you know, we've got to add a caveat: is that we want to move people into meaningful work, not just any work. So that's what I meant. Mm -hmm vocational training, relational welfare, you know, um, and, and this is very... So when you say relational welfare, you're talking about neutralised models, is that what you're talking That's about? That's one aspect, but also, as I said, with the banking system, mm -hmm. is that you establish an individual relationship, and Philip's done really good work on this in, in the Netherlands with social care, where... You have 12-person teams 
and they care for the same people so that the people see the same people time after time. They're not just, you know, I don't know what you're, I don't go to the doctor anymore because I don't know my doc, you know. You go in and they they don't know who you are or what you are. This this whole system has to, has to be um, reorganized in that way. So, yeah, I don't think we've, we've, we've tried any, and it's also the understanding of work. I mean, what is, you know, caring for children, caring for old people? This is, this is, by your sweat shall ye live. You know, this is, this is the world. This is, this is, look, and how do we support those? How do we support people in their caring rather than exclusively move to institutionalization? And we have another question here about AI and robotics. Yeah. So, and there's a horrific idea of, you know, a robot caring for the elderly. So how, how do you see the, the changes in terms of AI and robotics in the workplace and the wider social consequences in terms of the digitalizing yeah. and well, removal of relationships? I have, I have distinctive views on this and I'm open absolutely to, to challenge is, is that we were told that it was technological changes that meant we couldn't have full employment and it was technological <laughs> changes um, that meant that we had to invest all our, all our capital in in China, so essentially, I think that the that the working class have felt the fullest brunt of these technological changes. Although I don't think it was preordained that it had to be that way. The next step is going to be the proletarianization of the professionals. That the this is going to hit. So if you can fill in a form on the internet with your complaints and they can give you a diagnosis, that's going to be difficult for doctors. I think. The legal, you know, essentially the, the professionals are not going to be able to protect their domain in the way that they used to be able to protect their domain. But ultimately, no robot, they still haven't got a robot that can tell the difference between a dog and a cat, let alone your mum. You know, the, we tend to get a bit apocalyptic about it, but what we see is a steady growth of employment that involves human relationship. Now, and what I'm saying to you is this is good. This is very good for us, but it's to give those human relationships dignity and respect as a form of vocational. One last question. Oh, please. So when I was thinking about this lecture, it really struck me as astonishing, given the scale of the change in the nature of work, that there's been so little pushback you know, against these profound changes these insecurity in work, wage, wage stagnation, conditions. And so I hear you saying that it's the loss of association. It's essentially the philosophy of individualism that's atomized us from each other, that's divided people from each other, the loss of solidarity. And what I hear you saying is this is actually cause a concrete result. The result is that there's been no pushback against all these changes. It's almost as if people have been sleepwalking into a new reality. Well, that's the nature of political consensus and that's the nature of ideology the ide ideologies are there to tell you that there is no alternative to the way that they are working that's the fundamental power do you remember tina there is no alternative so we closed down the mines we deindustrialized. there was no alternative and suddenly we woke up as i say halfway through covid and saying china oh my god you know this, this but it it wasn't visible and it was seen as inevitable that the market was the most efficient way of distributing resources. Nobody really, uh, um, after 1983, uh, disputed, disputed that. So, but it's not just individualism, Jenny. It's also collectivism mm -hmm. is that either you do it yourself or you elect a new government that does it for you. Mm. No, I would say that what Catholic social thought has given me is the idea that if you are serious, you build relationships and institutions and associations with the people that you live and work with, and you you have a great freedom to to do things with that. So yeah, it's not just individualism. And then you asked about yeah increasing secularization. I just want to respond very briefly to yeah. uh, to that is. And this is just to share with you. So even the most secular people have a sense of the holy, of the sacred. So, for example, I spent some time with environmentalists and they are 
really aggressively liberally secular, but they do think that nature is sacred in some that we're violating it in some way. Um, and you know, th there's something going on with this trans debate and feminism where feminists are saying, "No, I'm a woman." You know that that's um, that's something they shouldn't be violated, and that's something that's sacred. So I've gone from thinking that we're living in increasingly secular to an unconsciously kind of inchoate sense of the sacredness of things that's being done. And, and so it's just to apprehend where people's sacred is and to build coalitions and not to forget the beauty, the strength of and the blessing of the inheritance that we've been given for our faith. Thank you. That was a wonderful lecture from Lord Glassman. If you enjoyed it as much as I did, please consider rating this episode in your podcast app. This will really help other people to find it. And please do share it with friends who you think would enjoy it as well. I'd like to thank Morris for talking about what has happened to work and how power has shifted. Brilliant to hear him thinking on his feet, setting out what is going on and what needs to be done and so good of him to do this at such short notice. I hope you enjoy listening to the other lectures in the series too. My name is Jenny Sinclair, founder and director of Together for the Common Good. I'd love it if you would explore our other work too, including our sister podcast, Leaving Egypt, with my good friend Alan Roxburgh, where we explore what it means to be God's people in times of unravelling. You can find it where you're listening to this podcast right now. Or you can join our community at leavingegyptpodcast.substack.com. You can find our other work at togetherforthecommongood.co.uk. Thank you for listening. God bless and goodbye for now.